As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. During the winter of 1803, the residents of London's Hammersmith neighborhood were living in fear. For weeks, witnesses kept coming forward who had encountered a ghost who was believed to be haunting the area surrounding the local graveyard. Several of the locals went to the police with stories of encountering a terrifying figure dressed all in white with horns and a glass eye. Rumors began to spread that this was the restless spirit of a man who had committed suicide by slitting his own throat the year before. This man, who as far as I can tell has never been named in any of the records, was buried in the Hammersmith Churchyard at St. Paul's. This was considered a sacrilegious act, because it was widely believed that suicide victims had committed a mortal sin and should never be buried in consecrated ground. On one occasion, the ghost appeared out of the darkness and caused a wagon driver to lose control of his horses, injuring all 16 passengers in the crash. On another occasion, a pregnant woman was crossing through the churchyard at night when the tall white figure rose up behind some tombstones and chased her. The ghostly figure managed to briefly grab hold of her, but she was able to get away, only to collapse from fright a short while later. Stories say that she died in her bed that very same night. Things continued to spiral out of control when a local man was walking past the graveyard one evening, and the ghost jumped out and strangled him. Other reports also tell of an elderly woman who dropped dead of a heart attack when the ghost jumped out at her. By the time the new year rolled around, the entire neighborhood was on edge, and dozens of armed citizens had organized and were now patrolling the streets. On January 3, 1804, a man named Francis Smith was out on patrol with his loaded gun when he turned down Black Lion Lane. He made his way along the hedge line path when he spotted a pale figure coming toward him. He cried out for the figure to stop, but when it continued moving toward him, Francis Smith raised his gun and opened fire. The ghostly figure dropped immediately to the ground. Francis rushed toward the figure only to realize he had just made a dreadful mistake. This was no ghost. It was a bricklayer and plasterer named Thomas Millwood, and the man was dressed in the traditional all-white clothing of his trade. Pale linen trousers with a white shirt and clean white waistcoat that draped down to his shoes. Francis Smith was horrified at what he had just done. He turned himself into the police and a week later he was put on trial for murder. The jury had quite a conundrum on its hands. Although it was clear that Francis Smith had murdered Thomas Millwood, they were still faced with the question of whether or not it had been an honest accident. Keep in mind, just a week before the murder, the soon-to-be victim, Thomas Millwood, had also scared a group of children who had seen him in his work uniform and mistook him for the ghost. But because Francis Smith had actually been in fear for his life, there were those among the jury who believed this to be a case of self-defense. 
Nonetheless, the judge tried to keep the jury on track and ordered them to find the man guilty if they truly believed the facts of the case. At first, they tried finding him guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter, but the court wouldn't accept any verdict less than murder in the first degree. The jury then came back with a second verdict of guilty, and a sentence of death was handed down. Francis Smith was to be hanged. But after that, you can see just how conflicted the British courts were over the sentence because Smith's punishment was later commuted to a year of hard labor. Despite the case coming to an official close, its specter continued to haunt the British legal system for another 200 years. Debates continued up to the modern day whether this truly constituted a case of self-defense or not. It wouldn't be until 1984 when the case was finally settled by the Court of Appeal in a case where the accused mistakenly intervened in what he thought was an assault in progress. In that case, the man's conviction was quashed, and for now the thorny legal issue had been settled in the British courts. But going back 200 years, that still left the question about the ghost. What? Or should we say, who was it? The massive publicity surrounding the trial would finally unmask him. It turned out that an elderly shoemaker named John Graham had been going out at night dressed in a sheet, pretending to be a ghost in order to frighten his apprentice, who in turn had been scaring Graham's children by telling them ghost stories. I know, it sounds a little extreme considering three people wound up dead following the man's prank. And as far as I can tell, there is no record that Graham ever faced any punishment for his actions. Strangely, the Hammersmith ghost is not the only tale of a haunting that has ended up in court. Nor is it the only case of a haunting having a lasting effect on the law. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, it turns out the spirits can have a very real effect on the world. In some cases, ghosts have become part of official legal proceedings. In a few instances, some ghosts may have helped solve their own murders. I'm Nate Hale, and in the criminal justice system there are two equally important realms, the living world and the spirit world. These are their stories. And this is The Conspirators. In 2017, a bizarre ad for a South Carolina home was placed on the real estate website Zillow. The 2,656-square-foot home came with one unusual caveat. The listing read, quote, Upstairs apartment cannot be shown under any circumstances. Buyer assumes responsibility for the month-to-month tenancy in the upstairs apartment. The ad explained that under no circumstances were you ever to go up and meet the mysterious tenant living there, nor could you ever attempt to get rent from them. The ad quickly went viral, and soon speculation began to spread like wildfire on the internet that the upstairs apartment was haunted, was the home of a serial killer, or perhaps something even worse. When the truth finally came out, it was a lot less scary than the ad implied. The tenant turned out to be a retired 70-year-old artist named Randall McKissick, who lived in the upstairs apartment with his three or four feral cats. He had been living rent-free in the upstairs of a family friend's home for nearly a decade, All the fame from the strange ad would eventually cause the man to move into a senior living facility nearby. Surprisingly, this isn't the only case where ghost stories crossed over into real estate law. 
In the late 1960s, Helen and George Ackley purchased a home in Nyack, New York. The sprawling Victorian manor overlooking the Hudson River was to be their dream home. But it wasn't long before the couple realized that they weren't alone in the rundown mansion. Over time, the couple began to hear strange noises throughout the house. Odd knockings on the walls, doors that would open and slam shut by themselves, and beds that would shake violently when no one was near. In 1977, the couple published an article in Reader's Digest detailing their paranormal experiences. Helen wrote about one occasion where she was up on an eight-foot stepladder painting the living room ceiling, when a translucent male figure appeared in the room and stood there watching her work. She asked him if he approved of the colors they picked, and the ghost smiled and nodded in response. Helen and George came to believe their home was haunted by three spirits. One of them would often appear in their daughter's bedroom and watch over her while she slept. Another was a Navy lieutenant from the American Revolution who nearly caused her son to jump out of his own skin the first time they came face to face in the mansion's basement. Despite a few scary encounters early on, the Ackleys came to believe the ghosts that lived there meant them no harm, and they even proved more than a little useful. Sometimes invisible hands would shake Helen awake when it was time to get the children ready for school. One time during spring break, she had to remind the spirits that the children didn't have to go to school for a week so they could let her sleep in a little. Occasionally, the ghosts would even leave little gifts for members of the family. Sometimes the children would find rings or antique coins the spirits left them. Once, they even left a silver sugar tong for Helen to find. After the Reader's Digest article appeared, the house became something of a local legend. Tourists would flock to the neighborhood to get a look at the haunted mansion. Occasionally, the Ackleys would offer ghost tours for curious visitors. The ghosts never seemed to mind. They went about their ghostly business and would, from time to time, make themselves known to the curious visitors. People often reported hearing whispered conversations coming from rooms where no people resided, of creaking footsteps throughout empty parts of the house, and of strange shapes they'd catch a glimpse of from the corner of their eye. In 1989, after living in the mansion for nearly 40 years the Ackleys decided to put the place up for sale. Unfortunately, the Ackleys' realtor failed to disclose to the buyer that the place was considered to be a haunted landmark. And the potential home buyers weren't at all happy about the prospect of purchasing a haunted house when they found out. This strange case would work its way up to the New York State Supreme Court in the landmark case of Stambovsky versus Ackley. In it, the court ultimately decided that the Ackleys could not legally claim the house wasn't haunted, and thus were bound by existing disclosure laws that they should have informed the buyer about the ghosts. Although the so-called Ghostbusters ruling did not officially determine whether the mansion was legitimately haunted or not, it assumed this to be the case based on the Ackleys' testimony and many interviews they'd published about the haunting. As a result, the couple was forced to refund the buyer's deposit on the home, and... More importantly, the Ackley Mansion has become known as the only legally haunted house in America. If we look at the history of murder and violent death around the world, there are inevitably going to be stories of hauntings that go with them. People swear they've seen the spirit of actress Sharon Tate around the infamous Benedict Canyon House, where Charles Manson's followers committed the Helter Skelter murders. In Fall River, Massachusetts, there are plenty of people who swear the house where Lizzie Borden lived is still inhabited by the spirits of her murdered parents. Many paranormal researchers subscribe to the theory that in a location where a violent death has occurred, 
the spirit of the deceased somehow becomes imprinted on the location, replaying the events of their death like a video recording caught in an endless loop. Although ghost stories make for great anecdotes to tell around a crackling fire, or for dubious TV shows filmed through that now-cliched green night vision glow, there is one ghost story in particular that stands out from all the others, and that it's the rare example where the testimony of a ghost was used in court to convict a man of murder. In the late 1800s, in Greenbrier, West Virginia, there lived a man with the mouthful of a name, Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. Although he is occasionally mistakenly named in some retellings of the story as Edward, most people back then just knew him as Trout. Trout was not a nice man. He had been in trouble with the law on numerous occasions. He was a competent blacksmith, although he soon turned that profession into one of horse thievery, a crime for which he spent 20 months in prison. He married for the first time in 1885, although he divorced within only four years. Some rumors say that his wife left him for fear that her husband would kill her. In 1894, he married again, this time to a woman named Lucy Tritt, although their nuptials would also prove to be short-lived. Lucy died less than a year into their marriage, in the February of the following year. Little is known about the exact circumstances of her death. Newspaper reports only say that Lucy died suddenly in her home. Wife number three would be a woman named Zona Hester. Zona was considered to be quite a catch among the eligible young bachelors who lived in Greenbrier in 1896. She was beautiful, and she had several suitors coming to see her. But she ultimately chose Erasmus Trout, and in October of that year they were married. But like Trout's previous marriage, this one wouldn't last either. On the morning of January 22, 1897, Trout was out running errands, and he sent a young boy named Anderson Jones to stop by his house to see if his wife needed anything while he was out. There, the young boy stumbled across a horrifying sight. Zona's body was stretched out on the floor perfectly straight, with her feet pressed together, one hand lying by her side and the other draped across her body. It should be noted that Zona's head was slightly inclined to one side. By the time the coroner, George Knapp, arrived, Trout was already back home and had picked up his wife's body and carried it up to their bedroom. He was crying inconsolably, and he was fiercely defensive around the body, making Dr. Knapp's job infinitely more difficult. As Trout sat with his wife's body, he kept cradling her head and sobbing uncontrollably. Knapp attempted to determine a cause of death, but Trout's interference was making this difficult. He did notice some slight discolorations on the right side of Zona's neck and right cheek. But when he tried to investigate further, Trout protested so vigorously that the coroner was forced to leave. He later reported that Zona died from an everlasting faint, whatever that's supposed to mean. Zona Hester's shoe's body was taken to her mother's house and laid out for viewing. But during the wake, Trout continued acting erratically. Most people chalked it off to the actions of a grieving husband, although some people, including Zona's mother, noticed how angry and defensive he got when people got too close to the body. He did something else strange as well. At one point, Trout took a pillow and placed it in the coffin next to Zona's head, so that she could rest easier, he said. Zona was buried the following day on Monday, January 25th. Zona's mother, Mary Jean Hester, had always disapproved of the marriage, and she made no secret about her dislike for her son-in-law. 
The news of her daughter's death had left her inconsolable. But then, something strange began happening. In the days following the burial, Mary Jean claimed that she began receiving nightly visits from the ghost of her daughter. She later testified under oath that Zona's spirit appeared to her and told her that her husband had killed her, after an argument over his supper. Zona's ghost then told her mother that if she headed to a nearby meadow, she would find a cellar beneath some loose planks where traces of blood remained from her murder. Mary Jean Hester followed the ghost's instructions, and sure enough, she found blood right where Zona said it was. She later stated to the officials that Zona appeared to her over four nights, and during her second appearance, she informed her that her neck was broken off at the first joint. After four nights of this haunting, Mary Jean took her story to the county prosecutor, John Preston. She told him that her daughter's spirit kept appearing to her and would not rest until her murderer was brought to justice. Nearly a month after Zona's death, the body was disinterred and an official inquest was conducted. The body had been quite well preserved throughout the West Virginia winter. The autopsy began by looking for signs of poison, but it became immediately clear what had killed her as soon as the coroner saw how loosely Zona's head moved on her shoulders. Zona's neck was broken along the first vertebrae, just as the ghost had said. Without any other noticeable bruises that might indicate a natural fall, it became clear to the authorities that Zona had been murdered. Erasmus Trout Shoe was tried and convicted for his wife's murder. But rather than giving him the death penalty, he was instead sentenced to life in the West Virginia Penitentiary in Moundsville. He died behind bars three years later on March 13, 1900. Although the case of the Greenbrier ghost may perhaps be the most famous case in history of a ghost that appeared to help solve their own murder, it's not the only one. William Corder was born in 1803 in the village of Polstead in Suffolk, England. William's father was a wealthy farmer, although since William had the misfortune of being born the second son, it was his older brother Thomas who was expected to inherit the farm. William's father never missed an instant to remind William of this fact either. He was both physically and verbally abusive to the young man, and William grew up despising him for it. William began rebelling against his father by committing an assortment of petty crimes such as selling his father's pigs without permission or passing forged checks. It didn't take long before William's father had enough of his son's behavior and sent him off to London to join the Merchant Navy. But William failed the entrance exam for the Navy due to his poor eyesight. But rather than return to the farm, he decided to make a go at living on his own in London. William fell in with London's criminal underground after becoming acquainted with a former actress-turned-prostitute named Hannah Fandango. He also began hanging around and committing petty crimes for a notorious gang leader named Sam Smith, who sometimes went by the nickname Beauty. But after London proved to be too difficult to thrive in, William returned to Suffolk in April 1825. The following year, William's father and two younger brothers fell ill with tuberculosis. William's father passed away, but the two brothers barely survived and would become invalids for the remainder of their lives. William's older brother Thomas inherited the farm, and since William was the only remaining able-bodied son, his status in the family rose dramatically. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, 
And of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout his life, William fancied himself a ladies' man, and soon his attention fell to a young woman named Maria Martin. Maria was a victim of the double standards of the era. Back then, a young man was encouraged to go out and sow his wild oats, but a young woman would be shunned if it was ever believed she engaged in premarital sex. As a teenager, she was hired into the service of a local clergyman, but was abruptly fired at age 15 when rumors began to swirl about her promiscuous behavior. Maria would go on to have a relationship with William's brother Thomas, and later bore him a son out of wedlock when she was just 19. But the infant died, and the whole affair was hushed up to avoid scandal for William's family. Maria cemented her relationship as the village harlot when she had a second illegitimate child with Peter Matthews, the son of another wealthy landowner. Peter ended the affair as soon as he learned Maria was pregnant and agreed to support the child financially in exchange for her silence. Sometime after that, William and Maria began their own secret affair. One of the locations where they met for their illicit liaisons was a local landmark known as the Red Barn, so named for its roof made from red brick tiles. In the autumn of 1826, Maria revealed to William that she was pregnant with his child. At first, William panicked, but upon realizing they wouldn't be able to conceal Maria's pregnancy for long... He instead went to the young woman's parents and announced his plans to marry her. But life took a dramatic turn for William when his brother Thomas was out walking on a frozen lake that winter and fell through a crack in the ice and drowned. This meant that William was now the sole owner of the farm. Although William once would have welcomed the news of his sudden inheritance, he saw it now as a major burden. The farm wasn't doing well financially and all William saw before him was a mountain of debt and a child he didn't want on the way. At least in the latter instance, that was a problem that corrected itself when the baby Maria gave birth to died within days of being born. William persuaded both Maria and her parents to hush up the birth and death of the infant. William wanted to avoid scandal more than anything. Rumors had begun to swirl that the local authorities were planning on arresting Maria for her rampant promiscuity the punishment for which involved publicly whipping her. William insisted to Maria that he planned on making an honest woman out of her. He told her to meet him at the Red Barn where the two of them would run off to Ipswich together to elope. That was the last time Maria's parents ever saw their daughter. For a time, William continued sending the parents letters insisting that everything was fine and he and Maria were living together happily in Ipswich. Then one day out of the blue, William returned and began living on the farm without Maria. He insisted to them that their daughter was fine, although there had been a problem with the marriage license, and Maria chose to remain in Ipswich until William could return to her. William eventually put the farm up for sale and left town. That was when the dreams began. All through the winter, Anne Martin began having terrible nightmares, in which she claimed her daughter appeared to her to tell her that she had been murdered and her body was buried beneath the floor of the Red Barn. After this went on for several days, Anne insisted that her husband go to the barn and find their daughter's remains. He went to the local bailiff, and the two of them went to the Red Barn to investigate. At the spot where Anne told him the body was buried, he poked a long mole-catching spike into the earth. When he pulled it out, he brought with it chunks of decomposing flesh. Maria's body had been buried right where the spirit who appeared in Anne's dream, said it would be. 
William was, of course, the obvious suspect. Police tracked him down to London, where stories vary about just what it was he was doing. Some accounts say William was working as the headmaster of an all-girls school, although still others say he was married after finding his wife through an advertisement in a London newspaper. In either case, William was arrested and charged with Maria's murder. The Red Barn murder, as it came to be known, became one of the most well-publicized murder trials of the 19th century. Several plays and books were rushed out to capitalize on all the publicity surrounding the case. The prosecution claimed that Maria had actually been blackmailing William into marrying her, and that he had murdered her to shut her up. Although Anne did not testify about the dream she'd had about her daughter's ghost revealing the location of her body, the newspaper still had a field day describing her paranormal activity in detail. William's defense team tried making a case that Maria had committed suicide in the Red Barn, and that a panicked William had merely concealed her corpse. The jury took only 35 minutes to find William guilty. Three days later, William was led to the gallows and hanged before a crowd of thousands. Even after William's death, interest in the case remained high. Pieces of the rope that hung him sold for a guinea each. A lock of Maria's hair was auctioned off. Ghoulish collectors chipped off pieces of her gravestone to keep as souvenirs. Although William's skeleton was originally to be donated to a local medical school, the skull somehow managed to end up in the private collection of a man named Dr. John Kilner, along with one of the man's ears and a piece of his scalp. But Kilner claimed that the body parts were cursed and caused him to have a run of bad luck. He eventually convinced a local priest to bury the skull in consecrated ground, and he sold the ear and scalp to other collectors. Now, if you look at both the cases of the Greenbrier ghost and the Red Barn murders skeptically, you can say that in both instances the ghosts that appeared to each mother were figments of the imagination, and they simply pointed the finger of blame at the most logical suspect in each case. Considering the Red Barn was the last place Maria was believed to have gone with William, it would have been logical to look for the body there. But history, as they say, has a way of repeating itself. And if we look to more recent history, there's still another well-known case in which a ghost appears to have helped solve their own murder. On February 21st, 1977, a call went out to the Chicago Fire Department to respond to an apartment fire at 2740 North Pine Grove Avenue. The firemen rushed up the stairs to the 15th floor apartment and quickly put out the blaze inside. But they were surprised to find a dead body in there as well. It was the nude body of a 47-year-old woman with a kitchen knife sticking out of her chest. Whoever killed her had dragged a mattress on top of her remains. The victim's name was Teresita Bassa, and she was identified as a respiratory therapist at the now-defunct Edgewater Hospital. Police had little to go on in the murder investigation, and within a few months, the case went cold. Things took a turn for the bizarre, though, when Detective Joe Stachula of Area 6 Homicide came into work one day, only to find a note on his desk instructing him to contact the Evanston Police Department about a potential lead. The Evanston Police told him he should contact a Dr. Jose Chua in the town of Skokie, who claimed to have information about the case. What Dr. Chua told them was, frankly, unbelievable. He claimed that his wife Remy was haunted by the spirit of a murdered woman and that she had begun to go into strange, almost comatose trances, during which she told him she was being possessed by none other than Teresita Bassa. Stachula and his partner, Lee Eplin, must have been wondering why they were wasting their time. Police get tips from obvious cranks all the time. But in this case, the information was coming from a doctor, which lent him a little bit of credibility. 
Dr. Chua told him he didn't believe his wife's story at first either, so he demanded proof from the spirit. He said his wife spoke to him in a completely different voice and told him that she had come back from the grave because she needed help solving her own murder. She said that her murderer was a man named Alan Showery and that he had gone to her apartment in order to fix a television set. As proof, she said that before he left and set the apartment on fire, Showery had stolen some jewelry from her that had been purchased in France as a gift from Teresita's father to her mother. She also said that Showery had given this jewelry to his girlfriend. This was already too much for the detectives to believe, but then Dr. Chua added that the spirit had actually provided him with the names and telephone numbers of several individuals who could help identify the jewelry. The detectives left, scratching their heads. The story the doctor had told them sounded flat-out crazy. But the man had been so specific in the details that they knew they had to check it out. As it turns out, there really was an orderly named Alan Showery who worked at Edgewater Hospital with Teresita. The detectives figured it was worth a shot at that point, so they went to the man's apartment on Schubert Street where he lived with his girlfriend, Yanka Kamlek. They asked Showery if he could accompany them to the police station because they thought he could help in their investigation into the murder. Showery agreed to go with them, and Kamlock stayed in the apartment. Stachula and Eplin questioned Showery and caught him in a number of lies. He then admitted that he had been planning on going to Teresita's apartment on the night of the murder to fix her television, but that she had called him to cancel, and that instead he had headed home to fix an electrical problem. The detectives returned to Showery's apartment to speak to the man's girlfriend. She told them that her boyfriend never said anything about any electrical problems, and he wouldn't know how to fix it even if there was one. They then asked her if Showery had given her any jewelry recently. She told them that he had given her the ring and pendant she was wearing as late Christmas gifts. With so many pieces of evidence matching up to the spirit's story, the detectives called the individuals the voice had mentioned to come to the station to identify the jewelry. And as you're probably expecting, yes, Teresita Boss's friends and relatives did arrive at the police station and positively identified the ring and pendant as belonging to Teresita. With this new evidence in hand, Showery finally caved in and gave a full confession to the murder of Teresita Bassa. Alan Showery's trial began on January 21, 1979. The defense tried to block the psychic testimony, but the judge actually allowed it. But after four weeks, the jury was hopelessly deadlocked and the case ended in a mistrial. But while waiting for his new trial to begin, Showery decided to plead guilty. He was sentenced to 14 years for the murder and four years each for aggravated assault and robbery. He was released in 1983 after serving only five years. It's difficult to know what to believe is real in this case. I think we can safely say without a doubt that Showery really was Teresita Bass's killer. But did her ghost really speak up from beyond the grave to solve her own murder? That's more up for debate. It would have been one thing if Remy Chua had been a complete stranger and had begun coming up with all these details about the murder of Teresita Bassa on her own. But it turns out that Remy Chua was also a respiratory therapist at the same hospital where both Teresita Bassa and Alan Showery worked. Furthermore, there were some reports that said that Chua was frightened of Showery. And although Chua claimed she barely knew Teresita Bassa, she also admitted that she had visited Teresita's apartment on one occasion for a party. Some employees came forward who said that Showery had even made complaints on prior occasions about the quality of Chua's work. So at that point you have to wonder if Chua had either overheard something Showery said, 
or perhaps even somehow saw the jewelry he'd stolen from Teresita and put two and two together, then came up with the possession story in order to explain everything away. In the end, it's impossible to say what really happened. At least in this case, we were able to say that Teresita Basso received some form of justice in her murder. Whether she brought about that justice herself from beyond the grave is a whole other matter. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. I need to give some personal shout-outs to my latest Patreon supporters. Thank you to Todd, Matt, and Paul. I really appreciate your support. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to stickers, magnets, and our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. There are plenty of other great ways you can help support the show, too. That includes subscribing, rating, and reviewing The Conspirators and Apple Podcasts. Besides Apple, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll be back for our next spooky Halloween episode. <laughs>